Welcome to Black Hill. There is, beyond the reach of the high road, near the reservoir, but on the far side from Red Moss, a cottage. The roof reaches down almost to the tall grass, and the small windows, therefore, give the sunken appearance of opening from under a deep frown. The house is dark at all times, cold in the winter and overly hot in the summer. It is strange that such a place, where water is still drawn from a well, and whose electricity is provided from a noisy diesel-guzzling generator in an outbuilding, should be inhabited by a painter. But there it is, and there she is. The darkness of the small, low rooms is not a crippling issue for her work. She chooses to work en plein air during the day, and reserves her written work for the evenings, when it is easy, with kerosene lamp, low ceiling, creaks and groans, to assume the appropriate role of something gestating in a womb, a work waiting to be born. This written work concerns ruins. More specifically, she considers why it seems to be that artists favour ruins, and that there is an aesthetic that favours failure, ruin, decay and loss, that is presented as something in a sense, pleasing to the contemporary mind. Architects, she proposes, are concerned with immediacy and the appropriation of space, while artists are more concerned with capturing the evidence of failure and the grinding processes of time. Any statement on the present is bound in their demand that you must perceive the amount of current and present time given to their consideration of the past. Artists occupy hindsight meanly. Architects, with similar meanness, exploit the present, and having seized it, contemn it to a vacuum past. The architect moves on. The artist occupies the failing structure and fills the void. You get the feeling that the hill is watching you, breathing down your shoulder while you make animal shapes on the floor, the great gash of a mouth left by the quarryman wants to consume you.
Scraps of red velvet are caught in the wires of a fence nearby the gatekeeper's cottage. The tapping of a Tess Rose's thorn against a study window becomes the tremulous tap of a child's fingernails on the door. There is a musty smell in the hallway, the smell of red moss marsh and sheep in the still evening air, fuchsia disappearing again and again behind trees, around walls, her hair dragging in branches. A small child looks up at you, a taller one stands behind and looks at the ground. Despite his wide, wide eyes and his fearful mouth, you continue to compose yourself around the wisdom that you do not invite the devil across the threshold, so you stand your ground. I'm looking for Murray, I'm looking for Findlay. Those velvet strips are not ribbons, they have been ripped from a dress. The children leave in single file and walk the road towards the lodge house. A point midway between the Glenbrook Road and the Grey Scheme, above the smoke but beyond the safety of the woods, a house stands alone and charmless, an open grave in the pathway, a stone ceremonially isolated sunk in the unkempt grass. Kick aside the galvanised slats of the security fence and stamp aside the hedge, and you enter onto a lawn run wild backing up to brown harling walls. Inside, at a table, over glasses of water, she dips a finger into her glass to see how much is left. She is blind. This, he thinks, affords him the rare opportunity to simply stare. Only an artist gets to observe like this and not be compromised by self-consciousness. It is a shocking immunity, a privilege, and he almost convinces himself that it is not an invasion of privacy when she says, stop it, you're making me feel uncomfortable. He apologises immediately. How did she know? Must we revisit the disowned notions of hidden senses, heightened perception and blind intuition? No. She tells him that men become unnaturally still when staring at a woman. His focus is absolute, and so the small noises that arise from being unengaged, shuffling, cleaning the throat, picking a thumbnail, adjusting the weight distribution on a chair from one buttock to the other, rubbing a sleeve, flicking fingers through hair. The absence of these idle things intensifies the atmosphere in a room. She can only equate that intensity with being stared at. Released from his reverie, he feels that he has returned from some long interior journey. All he has returned with is the lingering sense of a gift made of moments in which he could really look at, into and through the face of a body that he so desired. There is a studio in the gatekeeper's cottage. By the north-facing window he arranges a still life featuring a blackbird's egg, a shard of driftwood, a dead wasp, and what may be a fragment of shrapnel. Ever heard a wasp scratch wood? By night he dreams of a piano that has eggshell keys and makes a sound like blown glass. He stands before the paper but cannot rid his mind of the sounds arising from his dream. 
cannot rid himself of the fear that this delicate memory, wound on infinity and consoling to the core, will be lost as his playing fingers crack the eggshell keys and the glass, all lost, an echo, silence forever. He wants to give himself to the drawing but can feel the hill bearing down on his shoulder, its great gash of a mouth left by the quarryman waiting to consume him, the breathing hill, mouth and ribs looming to the south. There seem to be graves everywhere these days. In the tangle of blood-splashed papers on the desk by the window in the lodge, written in brown ink or old blood, this is a localised manifestation of the more familiar line, something is eating at him. The sense of the hill as a vaguely malignant forceful presence has arisen during his morning meditations. Under the brown ink scraps, manuscript paper for musical notation, though he has given up on notation, again he is attempting to break down some hidden wall between his inclination towards narrative and his wish to realise that narrative as sound, wordless yet informed, inseparable from a spoken voice. His tongue is swollen and dark as overripe fruit. He cannot close his mouth and his breathing is laboured. Music is the shaping of time through sound. If we were content, we would have no need of time. Consequently, there would be no medium in which music could grow. Music, therefore, is the shape we give our discontent. Music will lead you like no other form to a highly specific moment in your past. And it will hold you there, tender and weeping, whilst the other senses seek to furnish the distance with perfume, sunlight, birdsong, and the gasps arising from a bed. Music is the shaping of time through sound, and in our discontent we are locked into the inviolable laws of time. As Burroughs observed, death needs time for what it kills to grow in your stupid, vulgar, greedy American death sucker. Well, wow.